0: Welcome to Harper Academic Calling, our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind the scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well loved favorites to up and coming debut writers about their books. academic calling Thomas C. Foster. For a third time, Tom Foster returns to the podcast. He is a former professor of English at the University of Michigan, Flint, but students across the country have benefited from his expertise as a best-selling author with books on reading literature, poetry, and nonfiction, to name a few. Today, we're talking with Tom about a book teachers have been asking him to write for years, How to Write Like a Writer. In the book, he leads students through the basics of writing, From gathering their thoughts and writing that dreaded first draft to revising and refining their work. So, joining us right now, we have return guest Tom Foster. And, Tom, thank you for being with us yet again on Harper Academic Calling. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. It's always fun. Good, good. So, you're best known for um, how to read literature like a professor. We've had you on here before to talk about how to read poetry like a professor, how to read nonfiction like a professor. And now we're here to talk about how to write like a writer. You broke the pattern. What, what happened? Why, why not how to write like a professor?
1: Well, um, anyone who has read very much professorial writing would understand that's not necessarily a great indicator to say how to write like a professor. <laughs> um,
0: and there's a lot of bad writing <laughs> in the academy. That's maybe not something to aspire to. I don't think so. Um, so, in the book, you do talk about um, knowing who your audience is as you're writing. So that made me wonder: as you were writing this book, um, who was your audience that you had in mind, and was it a similar audience to your previous books? Was it different in any way? It was. Um, it's, it's a mixed audience, which is always tricky.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the first go round with with how to read literature like a professor was pretty simple. And simply wrong, uh, as it turns out. Um, you know, I was writing for this. I always I call the person a, a 37-year-old divorced nurse who's going back to school. Uh, and what I mean by that is I, I knew a lot of, I, I knew people in that, in that mode uh, who fit that identity, who came to UM Flint, which has an older than normal um, uh, age group, You know, their average age for undergrads is like 26 um, because they have so many working adults who who go there, um, you know, as most regional campuses do. And so I was writing for that person. I found them. Uh, Some of them found me. Um, I heard from them. But it turned out the book had way more pull than I had had ever imagined uh, for secondary classrooms. Um, I, I had that on the list as about the third possibility when I did how to read literature. Um, so for this one, I, I still had that that older um, uh, older than college age person who <clears throat> feels less confident than uh, than than is optimal about writing and and is forced to do writing sometimes or feels the need to do it or would simply like to be better at it at the same time. Um I know that there is a possible market uh, in the um, in both secondary and post secondary schools. I think not so much in college composition classrooms because they've got composition texts out the uh, out the years you know um, but in in situations of writing across the curriculum where the teacher, the professor instructor has to maybe um, give a day or two over to Uh, to talking about writing uh, and then assigning writing. Uh, It was a big thing in the late 90s, early aughts, and then it kind of died down to sort of a a steady level. Uh, It didn't take fire everywhere. I know that. Uh, Mm -hmm. But those people are still out there. They're still having to cause their students to write. I think most faculty members would like uh, their students, whether they're undergraduates or graduates, um, to write better than they do. Um, so, you know, sort of a multiple audience, but the, the commonality is people who, uh, believe they need to learn to write better or people who are being told they need to learn to write better. <laughs> Not quite the same, but near. <laughs>
0: um, and you do actually, you touch on that in the book, um, talking about how college students, um, by the time students have gotten to college, they haven't gotten enough writing instruction necessarily to be proficient writers. Um. So besides obviously making sure students have a copy of your book, um, how would you recommend that t- writing teachers sort of make sure they put students on the path to continuing to develop as a writer, whether or not writing is something that they wanna do full-time professionally, or if it's something they'll just have to do in their lifetime as we all will? Well, I, I think the, the first thing is um, cause
1: students to do a variety of writing types Mm-hmm. Um, including things that they are actually interested in writing or writing about or whatever it may be. <clears throat> they may not really want to write a, uh, an essay on Hamlet. Um, they may have to, but that's a, that's a separate matter. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're trying to get them to do more writing, then give them a wider array than just the academic paper. Um, you know, yes, do that one, but think about the writing that goes into laying out a, a website or the writing that goes into um making a good podcast. Those are those are also writing tasks that might interest students a little more and might, especially with the podcast, um I think give them more of a sense of writing for an actual audience. Mm-hmm. You want them you want them to feel confident, but you also want them to feel responsible in the right kinds of ways. Uh, responsible to some reader who is out there waiting on this piece of writing or this this address, this podcast, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm.
0: So if we're um, if we're talking about writing that is more that students would enjoy doing more, um, writing fiction is you know generally people would describe that as more quote unquote fun writing. Um, and your book primarily deals with writing nonfiction, um, but I'm curious, is there? Do you think there's an overlap between the two, like, do you think there's something fiction writers can get out of this book? Do you think writing fiction helps you in nonfiction writing?
1: I think writing
0: fiction uh, or poetry, for that matter, mm-hmm. help with nonfiction
1: because it focuses the mind on things like images, creating a, creating a clear picture. Uh, if you don't do that in a poem or you don't do that in a story, Um then the, the the reader isn't going to hook onto that. So that's one of the things that the fiction writers can – or writing fiction, I should say, can help what nonfiction writers do. Uh, at the same time, um, certain kinds of writing um, nonfiction – and I think of journalistic-type writing, uh, nonfiction narrative where you have to get the order of events correct and you mm-hmm. have to make it seem like it's interesting – even if sometimes it's not all interesting uh, because you don't get to choose your facts. Um, That could be of help to, um, I think, to to fiction writers.
0: Um, So I want to talk about um, something that a lot of people come across in writing, whether, again, they're professional writers or just writing for a class, um, and that's writer's block. Um, So I'm curious, what do you see writer's block as? Is it one thing? Is it multiple things? How would you say students should get past that? Um, I think I think it, it it I think it's multiple things or
1: different things to different people. I think there are many different ways that the writers get hung up, that we get hung up because I've been there. I'm not often blocked. Um, but I had a whole Lucky book you. <laughs> one time. <laughs> um I had a book that before I did immediately before I did how to read literature like a professor, I was writing I had a sabbatical, in fact, to, to research and write um, as much as I could of a, a book on contemporary Irish poets. And I knew exactly where it was going to go. And I knew who I wanted in. I knew which pieces of poetry I was going to talk about by each of the writers. I had already published uh, two chapters of it as, uh, as articles. And, you know, and this is in the academic press world. I was good to go. And I could not write. I had that semester off and I could not. I think I got two pages down the whole semester. It just the book wasn't there. And I think that's what sometimes happens is either you don't have as good a handle on the material as you might wish. Or you um, you don't have as good a handle on the approach as you need or you haven't found the approach that's going to open this thing up. Um, I think in that case, I hadn't found the, the the continuity between the proposed chapters of that book, and so I, I couldn't get the whole thing, I couldn't get couldn't a picture, bring it all together. It, and I couldn't make it, I couldn't make it come into focus as a whole, um, I think that's probably what happened there, uh, but sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, I talk about those, those seven deadly sins, um, and worry and doubt are the first two <laughs> that I list, and you know, worry is just like this amorphous. Well, I don't. How do I ever start? What do I do? And doubt is when uh, it's what Gail Godwin, the novelist and and uh, uh, an essayist, uh, calls the watcher at the gates. This little voice in the back that keeps telling you, "You're not good enough. You're not able to do this." You know, that's what doubt is. Doubt is that. That is that that gate guard, that watcher who won't let you in the gate to get started writing or to proceed in writing. Um, and so I think that's where most of it comes from. Sometimes sometimes people get really blocked um, by success. Um, the the writer who wrote Raintree County way, way back in the 40s or what, he never wrote another book. I'm not sure if he ever mm. wrote another word. Uh, the, the, the success of it put so much pressure on him. That um, he just he just was done. He couldn't find a way to write. Now, most of us don't have that trouble. <laughs> our book is not so phenomenally successful, especially the first book or whatever it may be. Uh, our our community organization newsletter not going to put that kind of pressure on us. Mm-hmm. But there are pressures because you think, oh, my gosh, these people are going to read this. Is this good enough for them? Am I being accurate? Am I being fair? And well, worry and doubt can just ball you up so you can't get anything done. Mm-hmm.
0: I think um, your anecdote about uh, working on the book about Irish poetry, um, to me, that sort of brings up this conflict between because um, you talked about how you had all your research done ahead of time. You knew what it was going to be. Um, so the conflict between the preparation versus the sitting down and almost figuring out what you want to write by actually sitting down and writing it as you go. So I wonder um, if you could talk about like that, the balance between those two, how do you find that balance between making sure you're prepared to write something and allowing the writing process to sort of illuminate the path?
1: Well, I would say, um, don't don't demand of yourself that you know everything before you begin writing. Mm -hmm. You'll find things as you write. I think I used the the example of my uh my late friend Jim Cash, who wrote co-wrote Top Gun and Legal Eagles and you know, mm-hmm. several films. Um he would um unlike Faulkner, no alcohol was involved. But when they were starting <laughs> when they were starting a screenplay, he would lock himself away for a weekend. And he basically didn't come out of the room except to, you know, uh find food. Um and he he called it a blast, and he just wrote as fast as he can, as fast as he could. He didn't care whether it was right, whether it was going to wind up in the film, none of that. And if he didn't know what was happening, he would just write in big letters, don't know, keep moving. And then he would start the next thing that he did know and just write everything down. And then he, in a, in a two-day session, he might come out of there with, with 60 pages of material. Now, maybe – five of them would get in the film <laughs> uh, but it, he knew he knew a lot more about the characters he knew a lot more about the action he knew where he wanted it to go even if the writing and and he would freely admit this the writing was pretty crappy um mm-hmm. because he wasn't he wasn't worried about it. he didn't let he didn't let the little things hang him up and i think sometimes that's what happens to us is we let the little things hang us up oh is that the right word here um I have a chapter I called Don't Edit a Flying Leap. And what I mean by that is when you're taking off and you're writing the first draft, do it fast, work hard, get everything you can done in the time that you have. um, And you can fix everything. You can fix everything except a draft that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if the draft is bad. You can fix bad. You can't fix empty.
0: Right. You can you can always paint the house or do whatever to the house later, but you have to build the house in order to paint it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm curious, in the process of writing this book and actually thinking about writing yourself, um, was there anything about writing that you either learned or rediscovered or maybe appreciated in a new way um, that you hadn't before necessarily? Um. Did this book help you as a writer in writing it?
1: It helped me in the sense that I had to i had to think my way through things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I also found that there are places where I don't follow my own precepts. Um, <laughs> um, I've been doing this for so long now um, that I actually do often edit as I go because I hear better words. I don't stop and go, I've got to fix this. But if I get to the next sentence and all of a sudden I think of a, a, a two-word phrase that gets rid of five words in the previous sentence, I will go back okay Mm -hmm. but i also have i think i'm able to keep pretty well the 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 bigger picture in view um and i i don't recommend that uh sort of niggly kind of work that that editing as you go uh for for most writers until that becomes that uh, you find out it's a part of you because it happens (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, you know you're thinking well i'm going to write this real fast i'm going to Um, then I'm going to sit down and I'm going to go through it. I'm going to, you know, read it and see what's wrong and fix things and do all the stuff that needs to get done. But maybe after you've been writing for a few years, um, something else happens. Okay. you, um, you find a slightly different approach. None of this is set in stone. You know, nobody brought tablets down from the mountain and said, you have to you have to write a shitty first draft in the words of Anne Lamott. Um, That's that's her mantra in Bird by Bird. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of people learned a lot from Anne Lamott. Um, uh, And and it doesn't have to be bad. (laughs) It will be. So, you know, you don't have to (laughs) strive for it. That part will take care of itself. Um, But her point is and my point is don't worry about that. And quality can come later uh, if you get the idea down or you get the narrative down, whatever it is that you're trying to write, do that quickly and get a handle on that and then, as I say, everything could be fixed.
0: Mm-hmm. I feel like all of us as we write as we you know discover our process um you know by and large, we do follow a sort of methodology that we learn, but I think we all figure out our own unique ways of doing things where maybe there's you know, like you said, the editing as you go, you kind of still do it, even though it's technically not something you would advise, but you find that that works for you. And I think we all find those little things for ourselves that, you know, this isn't quite what the rules say you should do, but this method works for me, so I'm going to do that. So I think it's as you develop, you sort of figure that out.
1: Right. And I, that's part of, of taking ownership of your process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, if, you take a, if you take a composition class, um, as most people do in college, um, they will uh, they will give you things <laughs> that you have to do and you have to do it in this order. And And on such and such a date, you're going to bring a first draft. And then on such and such a date, you're going to bring a second draft. Um, well, writing doesn't always work like that in the, in the real world. You go back and forth between things. Um, and I think it's it's good for the writer to figure out what what my process is okay what do i do as a writer how do i do this what am i comfortable with what am i not comfortable with is there something about the process as foster or lamotte or anybody describes it that just drives me batty and i can't stand it well if you can't stand it figure something else out okay mm-hmm. these are these are always suggestions they're not hard and fast rules um, and i you know I, I think even people who haven't written very much Have a pretty good idea of how language works and how they communicate with other people Uh, it's not like we're coming to this having never spoken before or Mm -hmm. have having never put an idea together before Um, we just don't think we have because we didn't do it on our own or because we didn't have a course or
0: you know whatever the case may be Mm -hmm. because it wasn't done in that formal sort of way right Mm -hmm. um so tom i have one more question for you um so I know we've asked you before who your favorite teacher is. We like to ask everybody that. Um, but since we've already asked you that, and since this is a book about writing, I'm going to ask you who your favorite writer is, Well, besides uh, yourself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I win that battle anyway. Um, <laughs> I've said, and I say in the book, that my, my favorite novel is John Fowles' The French Lieutenant's Woman which is one of these, you know, postmodern, metafictional back and forth between Victorian times and the present. Um, uh, I like that kind of stuff. And I like him because he's got a light touch with it. Um, but I want to give a, a a sort of special shout out in the realm of, of writing instruction uh, to John McPhee, who is one of our great journalistic writers. He's published, I don't know how many, how many books and articles or articles that became books in the New Yorker, chiefly. And he's taught for, uh, well, almost 50 years, I think, um, at uh, at Princeton. He teaches one, one course a year in the spring uh, on uh, basically on, on nonfiction writing. And he has a book of it out called uh, Draft Number Four. And his insights are just tremendous. You know, I, I really enjoy. I mean, he's the kind of guy you sit down to read something and you go, you know, I don't really care about two mile long coal trains running out through the West. And mm-hmm. within three pages, you're wanting to read the fourth page. You know, he gets you uh, and, and he's, he's sort of mastered that he can take improbable uh, subjects and make us be really interested in it. Um, And I think that's that's a remarkable skill. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Well, Tom, thank you once again for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on. Michael, it's my pleasure. All right, thanks. Mm, Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.